Right. Well, thanks, guys. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha again. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're new, welcome to our church, and glad you guys are with us today as we uh, worship and just otherwise learn more about Jesus. And a, bi- a big thing for us is this is not a novel thing. We're a church that actually seeks not to be novel in a lot of ways. We uh, prefer to be traditional and historical and just biblical and old kind of in, in one sense in the way we do things. But uh, with that said, we just love the Bible, and we, we believe that he speaks to us primarily through the, uh, this means. So he can speak and does through creation and, and maybe subjective promptings and things like that, or even things like dreams, but uh, that's a little more rare. But the way he primarily speaks is through his son, Jesus, and, and this book that tells us about him. And so uh, as the church has done for 2,000 years, we value gathering around it and hearing him and his voice afresh uh, through it. And uh, so right now, we're in a series in the book of Judges, which is an Old Testament book of the Bible. If you uh, know where it is in the Bible, it's a seventh book of the Old Testament. You can turn there if you want in the Bibles that you brought with you or the the ones in front of you in the pews or follow along here on screen in in just a second. But we're only two sermons in, including this this Sunday. So if you're just joining us, you haven't missed a lot. With that said, we introduced the whole book last week. So if you missed that and you're brand new to the Bible or maybe the Old Testament or this book, uh, uh, on a kind of a micro scale, I encourage you to go back and listen to that on our website if you'd like, or just talk to myself or Spencer, another one of the overseers, if you'd like to just kind of get coffee and talk about it. We'd love to, love to do that with you. So please, um, please do that or let us know about that. But today is Judges two six to twenty three. A quick thing on in terms of uh, how much of this book we're preaching. We're basically preaching every word. With that said, it's, it's Old Testament narrative with a lot of repetition. And it's just in a lot of kind of white space and stuff, too. And so we're going to skip a few things, uh, but basically preach the, the high points, the mountaintops of, of each section, especially in these earlier chapters. We're doing a little bit of jumping around. So um, just kind of be aware of that. Some of you um, might not even really notice that, but some of you I know have asked about that. So uh, there's, there is a method to our madness in that, but just know that we're doing that. But basically preaching all of chapter 2 today, 2, 6 to 23, and looking at this contrast between awful consequence and surprising grace. If you know anything about Israel's history, or maybe even kind of our own lives in a sense, uh, but Israel's history, you know that uh, this is a big theme, and there's a reason why they're juxtaposed, a reason why they're in the same narratives a lot of the Bible, and uh, we're going to see this play out again today, and really kind of serve as, like Peter was saying, a preamble to the book. So uh, Judges 1 and 2 are kind of um, dual introductory chapters to the whole thing. They overlap, they complement. I'll mention that again here in a second. Um, but I uh, just understand that, that, that piece too. But a couple of really quick things on the book. If you weren't here last week, Judges is basically a story about sin and consequence, like this is saying here, and God's grace and deliverance in the face of it. And it depicts Israel's history from about 1400 to 1000 BC, which is the time of conquest and land acquisition, the time of Josh, on the tail end of the time of Joshua. If you know those stories, if you don't, don't worry about it. We'll catch up to speed. Uh, but also turmoil, enslavement, oppression by other nations occupying this land that God is graciously giving his people in this period of history. And last week we talked about the theological nature of that and all of that too, so I encourage you to go back and listen to that if you'd like. Uh, but judges then in this book, understand this too if you're new to the book, are tribal chieftains and military captains, not judges like we think about them today, like in a courtroom setting. So the book then, being judges plural, is a series of narratives about Israel sinning grievously, again, like we're saying here, like we have been saying, suffering consequences for that, but then in the face of it, God raising up judges to deliver them and give them rest, physical rest, but also spiritual rest in the land. And so really, this is a book about Jesus Christ, as we said last week, because all of these themes and many more 
are things that Jesus would later do for us in the story and in history on spiritual levels. And so the book then is not, when we say these things, we're not saying the book is just simply an allegory. It's history. But we say that it's theological history. It's prophetic narrative. It's, the, it's classic uh, textbook prophetic narrative and art, the art of foreshadowing in literature. And so the cheat sheet that we showed last week, uh, this is a simple, albeit crude, as it says here, because there's more to say about the book than this. Uh, but still, a simple interpretational cheat sheet is to see the judges as prophetic anticipations of Christ, who is the ultimate judge, the ultimate deliverer, the ultimate rescuer. Israel, the people of God, and sometimes the judges themselves too, because they're all broken, broken people, uh, reference us. They're pictures of us. Other nations in the land are pictures of sin and death. And so last week we mentioned how lesser enemies, like physical enemies around Israel uh, during the day, are, are lesser in that they're still real and historical, but they're lesser in that they point to the greater enemy, which is always throughout the whole biblical storyline, always sin, always death, always the problem is always our separation from God. And so in that regard, when, when these lesser enemies are being overcome, they reference and foreshadow how God would one day overcome the greater version of those enemies. And then land and rest, again, we mentioned, but just a picture of salvation, Christ himself too, but also salvation experience and closeness to God. So have that in mind. Uh, today, we're going to look at more of a flashback. I mentioned the preamble piece a second ago, and Peter did. Uh, flashback here, Judges 1 and 2, again, serve as kind of overlapping accounts uh, of the, the, the setting and, and, and the setup for the book. Uh, if you know something about Genesis, Genesis 1 and 2, the first book of the Bible, has the same kind of thing going on, where the first two chapters overlap. They're, they're two ways to kind of introduce and talk about the creation narrative. If you've read that before, you might know what I'm talking about. Judges 1 and 2 uh, kind of do the same thing. They're, they're not meant to be chronological. In fact, the very first words of Judges are after jo Joshua died, and then these things happened. But in chapter 2, it says, when Joshua was alive, these things occurred. And so it's kind of like, he didn't rise from the dead. It's just that there's their non-chronological depictions of kind of the background to, to the book of Judges. So when I read this, and I encourage you to just follow along on screen or in your Bibles, have this kind of cheat sheet thing in mind. Look for Christ. Look for us. Look for the problem, the physical problem, but also the spiritual problem. And, uh, and then we'll come back and talk about some lessons here that we learn theologically, God's character, the gospel. What is the gospel truly? Where's Christ here? Where's the, the kind of the contrast between consequence for sin and surprising, unsuspecting grace that God shows in the face of it here? And praise be to God in our lives as well and other things uh, too. The art of remembrance, we'll talk about that. Lots of things that we'll condense into three things a little later. But let's start here with Judges 2. Uh, 6, to, 6 to 23, verse 6. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance, or a chunk of land, to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in timnath Harris in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountains of Gosh. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. 
they abandon the Lord and serve the Baals and the Ashtaroth. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, and the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges, who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, as they did, did not do so, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them, and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, Because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive them out or drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not drive them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Okay, so here we go. Uh, chapter 2, or, or the gist of it anyway, one of the nice things this chapter does in terms of introduction is it sets up the cycle, as we talked about. So basically, Israel sins, they commit idolatry, they forget God. They forget his goodness. They start to worship themselves and other gods and put their trust in other things that are, that are false and fake and evil. And they start to kind of take on the ways of the surrounding nations like child sacrifice and all kinds of really, really wicked things that will become more clear a little bit later in the book. But then, God, so there's consequence for that. God raises up other nations and kind of strengthens them against his people to kind of, kind of test and try and show them their weakness and show them the consequence of sin and then they cry out, they ask for help, and God hears that. He's moved, he has pity, it says, he loves them. He raises up judges to rescue them. The judge lives for a while, he has victory over the, the, these particular peoples and nations, and they give them rest, and he lives among them, and there, there, there's uh, sin restraint that's happening because of the life of the judge. Then the judge dies, and then they sin again, and the cycle starts all over again. That's basically the cycle of judges that we see happen, uh, basically about seven or eight times in the book, I'm forgetting the exact number, uh, it's a downward spiral, though, because things kind of get worse, and rest and all of that is kind of experienced on lesser, kind of more infrequent levels and so forth, and we'll talk about that later in the series. But basically, we see uh, the, the cycle here talked about at the end of, uh, or, the, or in the middle and in, in, in end of chapter, chapter 2. So if you're new to the book, or just if you're not, remember that and look for that cycle. All right, so with that said, there, there's three, like last week, I have three theological lessons here, so three things that demonstrate Christ and show us grace and show us the seriousness of sin and, and the, the, the theme of remembrance we're going to look at and a, and a bunch of other things too that we're going to condense into three things uh, today, uh, but kind of by way of introduction, and then we'll get into look at the actual judges themselves next week. Othniel, who's the first one in the beginning of chapter three, and then kind of go from there throughout the rest of these, I think, 14 more weeks or so left in this, in this series. Okay, so the first theme is the, the importance of communicating the gospel, or the, the phrase here that the judges used, is the work of the Lord to future 
generations. And, and I would add here, too, just kind of to our own hearts by way of, of remembrance. So Judges 2.10, very interesting verse here. It says, and there arose, kind of just kind of depicting Israel's history generationally during this uh, period of theological history. It says, there arose another generation after them, this is the key, who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. So they forget kind of who God is, just his goodness and his character, but also the work that he did for them, so the saving work that, that, that he did. So this is really a huge indictment on Israel, and there's a big warning for us here too, as we would say, as the Bible does, true spiritual Israel, so Jew and Gentile, who are now God's people through faith in Christ. We'll come back to that. But this is a, this is a big indictment on, on Israel at this juncture, and, and it's, like I said last week, just going to get worse for them. This starts off really bad here. This generation arises that, that just forgets. They, they, they don't practice the art of remembrance, and they're forgetting God's character and, and, and his work. But understand here, a couple of quick things, just background to this before we really uh, tie this to our experience now as Christians, uh, is, is this is, when it talks about the work of the Lord here, which, is, which can seem kind of vague, the thing forgotten, or one of the things, is the work of the Lord, it is very likely referring to at least the Exodus, when, and that is when God miraculously delivered Israel from Egyptian oppressors earlier in the story. So if you don't know that story, it's the second book of the Bible called the Exodus, which means to kind of be delivered up out of something. And so when they were enslaved for 400 years, and, and, God, and, they, and, and again, it's the same pattern really as judges. They cried out, they were oppressed, they were enslaved. God heard their cry. That's when he sends Moses to come and be that agent of deliverance and rescue them. And so uh, it, it's likely he's looking back to that, which at this juncture in history is not too far in the, in the past, and saying that's what they forgot when God did that. Again, not unlike he's going to do again and again in this book, Judges, just on smaller scale, kind of regional levels. So if the Exodus is like this big kind of initial one, Judges is a story of kind of many versions of what the Exodus was cyclically throughout the book and a little bit more regionally versus kind of on this um, big national scale. So remembering the Exodus, though, uh, this is, uh, if, if you're new to the Old Testament especially, understand this was something God commanded Israel to do over and over and over again through a variety of things. Festivals, laws, psalms, the prophets called them to do it a little bit later in history. Uh, the Passover, a couple examples of this, the Passover was this larger annual festival that kind of forced them to slow down and remember the Exodus because they're forgetful people. The Psalms say things like, remember the deeds of the Lord from long ago, referring to the Exodus. The Sabbath itself, this day of rest for Israel, meant to connect rest and salvation and give Israel a chance to rhythmically remember God's past saving work. And we could go on and on and on, built into the rhythms of what it meant to be an Israelite or a person of God in the Old Testament, was remembrance over and over and over again. And God actually, in one sense, made it very easy by commanding festivals and parties and holidays and celebrations and laughter and, and these different kinds of laws and teachings and things that made it easy, but it was still, you know, it didn't take much for sinful hearts to kind of resist that and forget. And if you know the story, it happens time and time and time again. But just understand, the practice of remembrance, you could say, shaped Israel's spirituality almost more than anything else. Like when you think of Israel's spirituality, what, what was it? What did that look like? There's lots to say about that, but remembrance was one of the biggest things. Remembrance shaped what it meant to be a person of God. And so, with that said, the correlation for us theologically is not then ourselves remembering the Exodus, 
though we do read about it and we do remember it and we look to it theologically, but it's not about remembering the Exodus proper like it was for them, but rather what that Exodus pointed to later in the story, which is what the Bible calls, and we say this a lot here too because the Bible does, the second Exodus or the true Exodus from sin and death through Jesus Christ. Because our oppressors are not Egyptians, but sins. If that's actually, it's always been the case. Even here at this juncture in the judges part of history, it's still, it's not truly these, these Philistines, not truly the Perizzites or the Canaanites or the Goliaths or, or whoever the oppressors are, individuals or entire nations. It's behind them the, the greater issue, the greater enemy, which is sin, death, separation from God, the devil and his dark angels. Uh, and there's other things to put in there as well. Those are the big things, though, that God is, is setting out to battle. And so it's no coincidence then when we, when we look at the New Testament later on, when Jesus starts to talk in these terms, in fact, when he's instituting the New Testament itself with communion, right before he dies and he breaks bread and he gives it to his disciples and, and he pours out wine and said, this is my blood of the new covenant. Remember what he says, and actually the front of this table says it. He says, do this in remembrance of me. Remember me through eating bread. Remember me through drinking wine. Remember that what I'm going to do on this cross, I'm going to shed my blood for you, is the essence now of what it means to be a person of God. Trusting in it, looking to it, beholding it, being thankful for it, believing that it occurred, baseline, but then believing it occurred for me, that God, Christ died, God sent Jesus, his son, to die for me in my place. So communion then replaces the Passover in that regard, but still centers on remembering an exodus, ours just being spiritual. And so he, here's the principle then, to kind of circle back to this idea with Judges 2 in mind, as it is still up there. Here's the principle. Second generations of people, so think about individual Christians, but also like whole churches, second generations of people or churches often forget what the first generation believed if it's not reinforced, and if it's just assumed. So uh, D.A. Carson here um, speaks to this. This is a paraphrase, but the gist of what he says, one generation believes the gospel, the next generation assumes the gospel, the following, so kind of third generation, denies it outright. This is all, pre this is all presuming that the first generation and kind of second generation uh, don't drill into it and emphasize it and underline it and make it very clear. We're very close to this occurring here in our church as well if we stop centralizing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what he's saying is the first generation believes passionately the gospel, that Jesus died for our sins and they center everything that they do on it. The second generation, so that the, kind of the kids of that generation or the second generation of Christians kind of behind them, let's say, like in a church setting like this, assume it. They say things like, well, we know what the gospel is. We've sung it enough. We've preached it enough. We've seen it enough. Everyone in our church knows it, and there's a general sense to which everyone's accepting it. We just don't need to talk about it that much anymore. We assume knowledge, and we focus more on things that flow from the gospel rather than the gospel itself. We assume people understand the most important things. When that, this is the dangerous part. When that happens, the danger is not so much with that generation, because they might still know the gospel. The danger is with the third generation. They will then deny it. Because what they see in the second generation is people just focusing more on the secondary matters, the lesser matters, and assuming knowledge about the main matters. 
This is what's happening here in Judges. And this is the point. There is a New Testament counterpart to this Judges verse. There's a New Testament, I'm talking like real time right now, in the 21st century, Minneapolis, Minnesota, Hiawatha Church, there's a New Testament counterpart to this Judges verse, and it's a warning. If you don't actively remember the gospel, and to use the words here, what God has done for you through Jesus Christ, you will forget it. I will forget it. Our kids will forget it. And the next generation of Christians coming up behind leaders at this church or churches like this church will at best assume it and at worst outright reject it. It will happen, you guys. Don't think it won't. It, it, it happened here at 1400 B.C. into the, the next couple of centuries. It happens cyclically over and over again. We see it play out. It'll happen. They forgot the exodus. If we forget our exodus... If we centralize other things, that th- this is what's going to happen. And so, so it's a warning for you individual Christians, uh, for think about your kids, think about those you're discipling, your, your younger Christians kind of underneath your care that you're teaching. Bible teachers among us. A lot of you are Bible teachers here. Leaders. What are we going to do to ensure this doesn't happen? Leaders kind of, in, in, kind of waiting in the wings. A lot of you are becoming leaders here at this church. How are we going to make sure this does This takes work. This takes work, and we have all the hope in the world because Christ is with us, but, but this is the warning right here, and D.A. Carson nails it, and we see it play out in Judges 2. If we're not actively remembering the gospel, we, we will forget it. So let's start with that, and then we'll, we'll see kind of how this plays out to you a little bit in a little bit later. All right, the second piece, the second um, lesson is a tale of two testaments or, or covenants. Now, I'm going to get just a quick crash course here on this. A lot of you I know are aware of this, but a lot of you aren't. And so one of the things we talk about here a lot, because the Bible does, this is a huge theme that we're really not going to do justice to it today because we don't have time, but we're going to try, is that the Bible is comprised of two testaments. So at the very least, you may have heard that there's an Old and New Testament in the Bible. Testament means covenant or think like, you know, last will and testament, kind of like stipulations uh, that kind of describe benefits and describes like, What's going to happen between two parties? How are we going to relate? Or think of like a wedding. Think of vows, promises between two parties. That's kind of what testament means or, or covenant. In the, the biblical sense, ways of God relating to sinners. Here's the key. Both of which, old and new, serve to tell the same story. The Bible's one story, but by way of contrast. So, the old here, as it says, is built on conditions and rules, things like the Ten Commandments, and Israel's, it's predicated on Israel's ability to observe them and curses uh, for not following them. And then the new, which is built on Jesus' blood and grace alone, not the law, not, it's not predicated on anything that we have to give at all, zero. And we know this because Jesus himself is very clear. When he makes the New Testament, that Last Supper, right before he dies, when he says, basically now the new stipulation is my death. The new stipulation is what I have to give. It's my work. It's me shedding blood for you as a fellow human being, but also God's son in in, in the same body. This is who Jesus Christ was, God and and human, just like us, but also God's son. So so they're related. They tell the same story, but, but they're also very different. The former one, the old one, fails, and in that way points us to the latter one. Now, here's the additional thing. 
the Bible's not just laid out this way, it itself tells this story. So that means it talks about the failure of the Old Testament and the coming of the new one. It talks about works versus grace. So our work versus God's work and how that latter thing is better. And it images that allegorically sometimes and spiritually so that it's not just words saying this, but pictures that are showing it. That help to contrast the, the testaments and prepare the way for, for, for Jesus. Back in our, some of you guys were here in the fall, we, we looked at Galatians. We spent uh, several weeks, uh, months actually, in the book of Galatians. And, and we talked about this a lot because it's a classic. Galatians 4, 21 to 31. I encourage you guys to go back and read that if you haven't yet. But notice how Paul reads the Old Testament there. He looks at the story of Abraham in the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, and says he had two sons. And the circumstances surrounding their births are important because he says they represent allegorically two testaments or covenants, one by works and human effort and one by God's promise and grace. The circumstances surrounding their birth demonstrate that there's two ways of God working, a lesser way and a greater way, a preparatory way and a final way, a way that was meant to fail to give way to this greater way that's based completely on what God has to give us and not what we have to give him. So back to Judges 2 then, the same, all this to say, the same set of principles is, is at work here. And I love how this chapter is laid out. Maybe you even saw it or got a hint of it when we read. Both testaments, this is the confusing part, are present here in this passage and, and are contrasted in a way so that the New Testament is ultimately the thing that's whispered as the better thing. And so, so here's what I mean. Going back to uh, verses 11 to 15, kind of one paragraph there, which most of your Bible translations probably kind of paragraph that thing out and have that as a section. Things go like you might expect, right? In an Old Testament kind of way. Israel does what is evil in the sight of the Lord. They worship the Baals and the Ashtaroth, uh, which, by the way, are male and female, respectively, gods of fertility and war. We'll talk more about them a little bit later in the series, but, uh, but they're basically the primary Canaanite god. The Canaanites are people of the land, kind of on a uh, just wide scale. It's their main gods, especially uh, Baal or Baals, plural, because there's different versions of him. It's confusing. But anyway, they, they committed idolatry, and they forgot the Lord. And this is, this is a key word here, too, by the way. It's a little bit of a bunny trail, but it says they hoard after other gods. So this is a great definition of sin. We talk about sin. I encourage you guys in this. I, I have to go here a lot in my own heart and mind, because sin today, the word, is very watered down. It's, it's not comprehensive it's very it's very um relative in some people's minds and and uh, we just don't understand it that well but when it says that in their idolatry they hoard out themselves or prostituted themselves out after other gods basically what it's saying is that sin is like a spouse cheating repeatedly on on the on his or her partner that's what sin is like so so sin is not like yeah I went 65 and a 50 once, got a ticket, you know, no one's perfect kind of thing. Like, it's way, way worse than that, it's way worse. And this is, I think, I mean, on a widespread level, a Christian or not, I think this is, like, widely accepted. It's, yeah, that's a bad thing. Cheating's a bad thing, but repeatedly committing adultery, or, like, if a husband or a wife went out to a, a prostitute over and over and over again, like, I'm talking hundreds of times, that's what we've done. Whether we feel that or not, I think we have to let this kind of confront us and say this is at least what this is saying. And not just here, 
all throughout the Old Testament, this is, this is like the message, is, is, is idolatry and sin is spiritual prostitution. That, that, that's what it is, and we're all there. That's, that's a really, I'm there. This is a really tough thing to hear, but, but we have to because the bigger sin gets, the more justified God's anger. So if you've read this book and you're thinking, why is God like this? This seems inconsistent. It's probably because your view of sin is too small. And so the bigger sin gets, the more justified God's anger and the more surprising his beautiful grace and the more wanted it is. And then the more justified the messy, visceral, bloody cross. It's more, it's more justified. It's, it's, it's like um, we say a lot, the two are connected, the problem and the solution. It, it'd be like if I asked my neighbor to come help me move a couch inside and all of a sudden, two minutes later, about 18 fire trucks show up. Like, he called the fire department over to help me move the couch in. I'm like, what? I just want, like, two extra hands. I don't need the fire department. 18 trucks? Like, that's an overreaction, neighbor, you know? Uh, it, it's the same thing. Like, if, we, if sin for us is just like, oh, i got to move a couch inside, the fire department of the cross, so to speak, is, like, weird. Why did, did God's son have to be tortured to death for six hours? Why was his back ripped open to expose his internal organs before that? Why was he stripped naked? Why was he humiliated? Why was he spit upon? Why was that crown of thorns pressed and dug into his head? See, he, this is hard to hear because Judges is hard to read. But see, if we understand the problem, the messiness of Judges, the messiness of the cross makes more sense. If sin is not just speeding, but spiritual prostitution... The messiness of the cross is more justified. We need that kind of death, that kind of atoning work. We need that kind of death, right? We need it. We want it. The cross becomes less taboo and gross and like, oh, it's, it's hard. It's a hard reality, but it's beautiful. It shows us the love of God and the power of God over terrible things in our hearts. All right, that was a huge digression. But, but anyway... Then it says here, so the people sin. Then it says, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who, who, who plundered them. So in other words, this is kind of what you might expect in terms of like a, a sin consequence kind of basis, right? There's consequence for sin. There's punishment. But then verse 16 and following, and maybe you noticed that huge change in feel from 15 to 16. If you didn't, look at this again. When 16 comes, all that happens, then a verse later, then the Lord raised up judges. It, it's like, it's surprising. It's like, where is this way out of left field? So what, what, when you look at these verses, things change, at least a bit, but even more than that, and, and include mention of things you wouldn't otherwise think would be here. So especially under the stipulations of, of, of the Old Testament, which is why we're going, taking the scenic route with this, the presence of judges, you know, that God himself raises up to save his people in one sense, shouldn't be here, but they are. You know, in verse 16, it says, The Lord raised up judges who saved his people out of the hand of those who plundered them. Verse 18, When the Lord raised up judges from the Lord is with the judge, he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. The Lord is moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. So, in other words, two different paragraphs and two covenants. Old to new, law to judge, consequence to grace, anger to pity, man's failure to God's success, oppression to freedom. 
And the good news here, you guys, is that we are, if we believe in Jesus, we're not under the former system. You know, verses 11, 15, 11 to 15 are not your reality. Verses 16 and 18 are your reality. Breathe that in. The point of Judges is to show that, that though we cheat against God repeatedly, his ultimate answer is faithfulness and grace and judge-like deliverance. Jesus. So these are the two options. If you look at the two paragraphs, look on your, in your Bible if you have it in front of you. What comes first? What's the first paragraph? Sin reigns. Sin overwhelms. Right? But in, in, in the latter one, the, the secondary one, the one that comes after to surpass, is, is the better one, the New Testament. So the two options are, other na- in, to speak in judges' language, other nations overwhelm or the judge delivers. Or to, put, to, to kind of reference that spiritually, either sin overwhelms us or Jesus destroys the sin and frees us. That, that, that's, that's the two options for sinners like us. That, that's, that's what the Bible kind of holds out as a warning, but also a huge hope-giving grace. It, it's either it's the former or it's the latter. Which one is it? It's a matter of where we're putting our trust. If our trust is in ourselves, we're under the condemnation of the first paragraph. But if it's in Christ, it's in, it's in the latter one. The point here, guys, is to say, your sin is not the last word. Jesus is. Just like the judges are mentioned after the sin paragraph, and the New Testament comes after, the New Testament comes after the old in, in the, the greater storyline, just Jesus is the last word. Whatever you've done. I mean, the, the invitation here is to ask over and over again, do you believe this? Though our sin is spiritual prostitution, God's response is faithfulness, not divorcing us, and sending Jesus to save us from our sins, which he does through his atoning death. That's the point. We need the judge. We need the judge. We need the judge. We need the deliverer who is Christ. All right, a third thing here, which kind of pulls from the second, so it's kind of 2B, but let me just read this. In 2.19, a very interesting thing here. It says, but whenever the judge died, it's a key clause, whenever the judge died, they, Israel, turned back and were more corrupt then than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them, bowing down to them, etc. So one thing I want you to note here is that it's, it's the presence of the judge that restrains sin. So in, in other words, th- think about, you know, um, what, what's happening here. And, and think about it, in context, the, the people of God had the law, they had the Ten Commandments, they had this sort of standard out in front of them that they could choose to keep or not, or work on or not. But what this is saying is, it's, when, it's the moment when the judge died that the people started to sin again. Why couldn't they keep the Ten Commandments? Why couldn't they just follow the law? Why do they need the judge to be alive around them? Why doesn't it say when the law was burned up, when someone kind of committed that type of, you know, arson or whatever, when they burned up all the copies of the law that Israel had, then the people didn't know how to live, and and then they they kind of went the the wicked route. It doesn't say that. It's when the judge who lived around them died, then people went, uh, went awry spiritually. It's very interesting. And it's very true theologically if you look at the whole storyline. It's in the same way in the Christian's life. It's not the commandment or the moral code or our willpower. 
that keeps us from, that, that restrains sin ultimately. Those things might have a speck of power in as much as they serve as smelling salts or show us God's ways or, or, or whatever. But really, here's the truth, it's the presence of Jesus in our lives. It's his grace that moves in our heart. It's his love. It's his powerful spirit. This is clearly what Judges 2 is saying. Otherwise, it makes no sense. Why is it the judge's life that restrains us, and why is his death that precedes this great spiritual downfall? Why couldn't they just keep the law? We could say the same questions about us, and the answer is because we can't. We're not good people. This just flows from the definition of sin we just talked about. We're, we're not just spiritual prostitutes. We're dead in that sin. We can't do good. And goodness ultimately comes from him, not us anyway. And, and so the, the implications for this are just, you know, myriad, and we don't have time for it, most of this. But if this is true, then Christianity is not simply about following Jesus' moral teachings. It's about his life. It's about his resurrection. If it's the life and presence of the judge that restrains sin and gives rest, then Jesus has to be alive for him to have any positive effect on us. And he is. So he's better than the judges. The judges die, but Jesus is after his death three days later rises again, and he's still alive today. See, this is huge, because if, this is saying, if Jesus was just a guy who lived and said, here's a few ways to live your life, and then died and is still in that grave, he's no help to us whatsoever. No help whatsoever. Do you guys believe that? As Christians, we have to believe that. You know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus didn't rise again, all of Christianity is trash. It's a joke. Run for the door, don't walk. We're wasting air in here. We should not be here. Jesus is not your moral teacher and life coach. He, he's a, he raised himself from the dead. And it's his life. It's that act of victory over death and that presence by faith, the presence of that in our lives that saves us. It's, it's, it's his presence that restrains us from sin. This is such good news for any of you like me who are just, sick of trying, who can't stop the patterns we're in, who can't free ourselves from this depression or anxiety or sin struggles or idolatry or pride or pornographic addiction, whatever it is, put anything in that blank. Whatever your standard of righteousness is yourself, when you think about what a perfect human being is and how far short of that you fall, he, fi he fills that gap in and more, he destroys that whole paradigm and in its place, we just have him on a cross with open arms saying, this is how much I love you. Replace law with that image. Replace your effort to keep the commandments with that image. This is what Judges 2 is saying. It doesn't mean that we can't be active in battling injustices and evils and impure thoughts in our life. Quite the opposite. It just means we do it with the knowledge of our Savior's work and belief that he's alive in us. And peace in knowing we're not saved by how well we battle, but by how well he battles for us. That's the message of Judges, over and over again. Get used to that one. We're going to see that one every week for 15 weeks. And then basically every week after that for the history of our church, because that's, that's the point of the whole Bible. Uh, but in confidence that grace will prevail. So in other words, his work must take effect. Check this out. In Genesis, God says, it was I who kept you from sinning against me. 
Every time you don't sin, that's God causing that to occur. Do you believe that? It's a tough one. It doesn't mean you haven't chosen or, or battled or shed blood even or just suffered for the sake of not sinning, that, that's not, that in any way hasn't been a work. It just means that God's behind that curtain. He's behind it, allowing, causing, wooing, softening your heart, making ways of escape or exodus out of it. He's the God who does it back here in Genesis through his son and now by his Holy Spirit's presence in the church. It is God's life, guy. He has to be alive like the judges or no power, no meaning, no relevance, no moral lesson, none of that. He has to be raised from the dead. He has to have died, first of all, on that cross for our sins. Otherwise, none of it matters. And, and so the, the, the thing I want to I leave here, leave you guys with is it doesn't, because of all of that, this is why it's so good for sinners, is it doesn't matter what you've done or are doing. It matters that the true judge works for you and that he's alive and that you believe that and that you trust him. Every day and right now, right now, whatever you brought here this morning, it doesn't matter what you've done. It matters that the judge is alive and that he works for you. And this is why we talk about the gospel and sing it and eat it every week. Remembrance, right? Remembrance. It's the message of Judges 2. It's grace, not works. God is like a husband who stays committed to his bride after she cheats on him repeatedly. Not only forgiving, but actively fighting for her. And not only fighting for her, but giving his very life to do so. That is what God is like to you today and to me. The response is faith, brokenness, trust, laughter, joyous tears, prayer, song, eating the New Testament, because it's not about law, it's about a meal with God. That's the response. And working hard, remember, at remembrance, 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 remembrance. The work of the Lord, the second exodus. What did God do for us? It shouldn't be vague for Christians. It's not 10,000 things of equal importance. It's he died on a cross. That's the thing that was better than any other thing he ever did in, in his ministry. He himself says this. There are greater works and lesser works. John 14, 12. There are greater works and lesser works. The greater work is his death. The greater work is his resurrection. That we have to go all in on that as Christians. Or we run the risk of fading. And then as it happened for Israel, forgetting the work of God, guys, leads to sin. Like it did, you know, when it says they forgot the work of the Lord. They did, a new generation rose up. They forgot the work of the Lord. And then they fell into sin. There's a correlation there for us as well. Forgetting what Jesus did for us and just how much he loves you guys and us in this church. It's crazy. It should blow our minds. Be the hardest thing to practice every day is wake up and actually believe that. It's a really hard thing to actually believe and apply for me, for us. But it's true. And, and, and the correlation there is, is strong. When we believe that, sin will lose its grip. Grace is the thing that kind of loosens the, the power of sin in our life. It's not the law. It's not trying harder. It's focusing on Jesus and his death and resurrection and really drilling into that in, in community. So let's do that. Let me pray and we'll respond with some songs here. God, God.